I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men's Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. This is episode number 160. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies, and men's experiences of pleasure. And today, I have the pleasure of chatting with the techie tantrika, Devika Singh. Devika is a holistic intimacy and self-relationship coach, holistic sex educator, and pleasure-inclusive sex education advocate. Her work focuses on reporting sex slash dating tech trends, uh, along with normalizing conversations around topics that are still considered taboo or socially charged. These topics include sex education, pro-sex spirituality, various forms of intimacy, rebirth and transitions and personal transformation, death positivity, and how metaphysics impact how we connect to one another throughout life. And you can find Devika on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at the Techie Tantrika or on her website, devikasingh.com. That's D-E-V-I-K-A hyphen S-I-N-G-H dot com. And in this episode, we really get into some nitty gritty conversations around technology and sexuality. So like navigating tech and sex from things like sexual consent and I, I suppose like censorship and terms of service and content creation. We talk about foster and sister legislation, you know, the rhetoric that's used to kind of push legislation like that. Talk about human trafficking, artificial intelligence, tech billionaires, uh, data privacy, sex toys, politics, uh, a bit of everything. So if that is of interest to you, then I highly recommend keeping on listening. It was lovely to connect with Davika like this and have a conversation about stuff that uh, is really fascinating and interesting to me. And I don't really get an opportunity to talk too much about it. So I was really nerding out with her. So super enjoyable for me and I hope you enjoy listening. His interests were mainly masculine and his success at sports made him sure of himself. He could take girls in his stride just as he did games. Mother, is it wrong to feel warm and affectionate when you when you with a boy you really like? No, dear, it is not wrong. When young people come and ask me, should we get married now? I usually ask them a few questions first, like, have you known each other long enough to be sure that you're choosing the right person? Devika, you and I can jump straight in. And uh, the way that I like to start is with just like a little invitation for for you to share a bit about who you are, what you do, and what are you really passionate about? Oh, awesome. Okay. So I'm Devika, the Techie Tantrika. I actually started a YouTube channel around this brand in 2017, but in actuality, I've been a dating and relationship coach like for at least 15 years at this point. And I added sex education, especially like from the holistic perspective um, around, oh, it was about 2013 I had started doing that. And I kind of put my shingle out. This this brand had kind of been born out of my um, my journey towards, you know, towards holistic sex education. And since then though, and, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this too, 
when I was, you know, putting my digital shingle out and, you know, doing the thing that we all do where we were, you know, trying to find our clients, trying to find our voice through social media and really finding who our audience is, the big deterrent that started coming up for me was all the censorship around sex education. And it was just driving me like nuts. You know, I was trying to understand, especially coming from the tech sector, like, why is there some censorship? So I had actually, I put a halt on looking for more clients at one point and decided I would actually go back to school to complete my degree because I actually had a social media management background already. And I wanted to understand, you know, how does social media advertising work? Why are these things happening? And it took me down this really exciting wormhole. And I started understanding like the political side of what it is to be a sex educator, but also like I was also very invested in North American witch activism too. And I understood the political side of what it is to be in the magical community as well. So there was a lot of overlap and a lot of similar concerns and issues. And that ended up also taking me into the web of disinformation and how that's impacting, you know, democracy. And then of course the pandemic had hit and that took me further down that wormhole too. So I've been looking at the censorship situation and policy in general and just understanding how this is impacting our work so that people like yourself and other amazing sex educators can actually get the word across and actually do their work unhindered because there are other uh, actual countries that want to see um, you know this ability to actually have sex education available to you know teenagers and adults and you know the countries that kind of house the tech companies which are mostly you know well of course the us right but then they have satellite offices of course usually spanning through throughout europe and canada like these policies that are presiding over our social media experiences just don't reflect what every country necessarily wants so i've been looking at this from an international policy side of things i've been looking at this from an international security side of things and and as a sex educator. So yeah, that's that's kind of where I've been lately. I've just been looking at this in a way where I'm trying to understand from you know the tech side of things how we could go forward and make sure that this very important information is put out there, this information that we didn't get in school. Mm, yeah, I'd love to, to dive deeper into this with you. And thank you for giving a bit of a contextual kind of piece around like where you're coming from as well. The, the things that come to mind, like if I try and put myself in the shoes of, you know, someone who isn't a sex educator, who's just like, you know, engaging with social media as a service. So the things that come to mind are like terms of service, for example, right? Like, and this is, this has kind of been a, a point or an argument that's like been not levied against me, but someone's kind of like made this uh, point to me. It's like, well, you're just breaching the terms of service. Like you're, put, you're putting up photos of, well, I wasn't putting up photos. I was putting up drawings pictures of you know penises and artistic depictions of other sexual you know anatomy and having that removed and you know in, you know I, I suppose like coming up against the censorship and so someone said to me well like well it's just the terms of service like you're just like there's nothing inherently bad about it you're just coming up against the terms of service and i was like Yes, I guess, but like that just it doesn't seem like that didn't like feel like the the right answer to like this censorious um, experience that I was having. So I wanted to like firstly speak to you about TOS and like if there's anything in there around censorship that you wanted to speak to. That is such a great point because 
I mean, I think people need to understand terms of service, first of all, is not law, you know, like the terms of service might actually be catering to certain limitations they might have because of laws or, you know, you know, try to customize themselves towards laws. But, you know, but you brought up such a great point and I'm laughing because I'm thinking of this argument I had with Uber Eats recently, which is obviously Uber. Um, they tried to charge me $18 just because I canceled an order and I had never ordered through convenience stores stuff, like their services that way before. And I said, well, why, why are you charging $18? There was no messaging. There was no warning, nothing. They said, oh, just terms of service. The same terms of service, I, which terms of service, first of all, the one I signed for Uber before Uber Eats even got to my country? Like, what are they talking about? So why, why is this buried in there somewhere, you know? So I don't think, I think people have to be so careful about the compliance towards this catch-all terms of service because it has landed us in so much hot water, you know? Like, okay, I think first of all, these tech companies need to work with us. They need to work with sex educators like they would with any other educator, right? And actually let us all know and understand where what we can product bring out and what can we actually put online and what we can't put online because the terms of service are not even applied evenly like when you look at even just for example let's say facebook ads they say you can't show a certain like just one body part in an ad for example you can't just show an arm you can't show a back or whatever but it has been shown that corporations get away with this. Like, you know, oil of LA ads, for example, they can show just an arm or a back, you know, like just the back or something. And they're allowed to do that because they're a huge corporation with a lot of money, you know, paying into Meta, right? So aside from the fact that terms of service is a very dangerous thing to become complacent with, the other side of it is it's not fairly um, you know, reasonably spread across, you know, across what's allowed. And the other thing too is what exactly are we trying to censor? Because I always think of, let's say the welfare of, let's say for TikTok, for example, the demographic, let's say are teenagers. So they want to protect them, let's say against sex education for like, I don't know, so many reasons why people say that they are doing this, but let's say for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons they're doing that. The problem is then all the other stuff they allow. So, you know, like you can allow for extreme violence to be on these things. Like let's say it's a war scene from a movie or like actual violence from an actual war, you know, with like a documentary or something like that. Or you can have people who are close to nude, which obviously I have no issues with, but this is something that usually gets conflated with sex education. You know, we have all these other things that are allowed, you know, especially for people who are doing this that are underage, which has been an ongoing problem on all social media platforms. And I'll get into that more on the adult trafficking side of things, because that's something I've also been following for the longest time. Um, so they allow all this stuff to happen. And that stuff can very well be conflated with uh, gateways into adult trafficking and social media outlets are not really held that much accountable for the like preliminary steps that lead into those exchanges. But then when it comes to us, it's like, well, how are you even, how are you even deciding to censor us? Like, are you going to censor, let's say you and me a different way than let's say a famous author who happens to also be a sexologist? Like, how would that be fair? You know, it, it, it's just so uneven and people don't read the terms of services either. And the scary part is that there's so much contained under terms of service at this point, the people really need to understand the laws in their own country 
and the terms of service, because when you get, let's say, into hot water with, uh, you know, with the social media outlet, it's important to know how those terms of service might be violating your own country's laws. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And you, you, there's a couple of things in there that I want to try and like uh, marry up is um, hum- so human trafficking, right? And child sexual uh, exploitation and the introduction of like Foster Sesta, for example, how that impacted TOS, right? But also that's an American law. So it doesn't necessarily impact people that are using like British websites, for example, like .co.uk websites. They're only only impacting websites that are you know, American hosted, for example. And so, so there's like discrepancies there with how that's applied, right? And and so I've, I've spoken about Foster Sesta before, not necessarily on the podcast actually, but um, on social media. But I was wondering, are you familiar enough with Foster Sesta to kind of describe what it is and what it did? You know, I so the thing about Foster Sesta for me is I find it so interesting because exactly like you said, that's supposed to be for, you know, American sites. And I'm not even agreeing with what happened there with the American sites because it was atrocious and actually make cause more danger than like danger towards the goal that it was trying to, you know, achieve. Like it was trying to curb um, human trafficking, but it only like put more gasoline on the fire, first of all. But the other thing is, if we're talking about social media outlets uh, within that American law, I feel like, and I haven't seen, I really haven't seen anything to prove me otherwise. I've seen that still impact our experience, whether it's me in Canada, you, Australia, it's, it's a blanket. It's just a blanket uh, impacting all of us. So, I mean, I unfortunately see whatever, you know, whatever FOSTA SESTA did to the U.S. is going to impact our internet experience, regardless of what country we're in, because, you know, we use a lot of these services from the U.S., so. Yeah, yeah. And from what I understand, it essentially turned websites like social media, for example, from uh, from from websites that just host content, right? So, in, you know, each individual uploads it and Facebook's just like, well, I can't be responsible for what's on my website because it's each individual uh, that uploads it. I, I'm just the the provider that, that hosts it. And it changed the uh, section 213. 230. I, yeah, 230. Yep, cool. Of the... Um, Oh, it's all, all this legal jargon that I can't remember. So hopefully you'll That's be okay. able to, 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 to uh, bolster me through this. But from what I understand, it changed the definition of what these websites are from just simply hosting other people's independent content to actually being the like providers of that content. So they will now essentially it changed their responsibility to now they're responsible for what's on their platform. And so in order to cover their ass essentially rather than doing um, moderation and and going through and fine tuning like okay this is educational and this is appropriate and this is you know human trafficking they were just like you know what fuck it blanket ban on anything sexual so that we just nothing gets through the cracks even though things still do do get through the cracks but the the blanket broad strokes approach was kind of applied rather than a kind of fine you know tooth and comb approach and my, I mean, the reason that was put forward was, you know, that it's like impossible to do that, but it's not impossible. It's, it just requires more money. And, you know, they're like, you know, what's going to be cheaper for us not to do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't we see this too? Like we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, social media outlets were being nudged a little harder on like curbing, you know, the anti-vax and anti-masking rhetoric, right? And we've seen this, of course, too, 
about people speaking against Trump like earlier in his election as well. It's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, you can censor things. Okay, like it's censor them well, <laughs> you know? So where you went, all the misogyny and all the racism and all that stuff, like why am I still able to see memes that are like totally encouraging blackface or encouraging the killing of sex workers, like sex trade workers, like things like that, where I'm just like, why is it that I can keep reporting these things until the cows come home? But then like, nothing's done right so we're seeing like this weird uneven censorship still go on so there's that part of it but you know are there like thinking to what you were saying too about like foster sesta and and uh i'm kind of losing a bit of train of thought too because i was like the first thing that came to my mind and just thinking about the terms of services as well but in terms of foster sesta going back to section 230 the funny thing about that is, okay, so FOSTA-SESTA, I'll back up to something you had mentioned too about how it had conflicted with this previous law, uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. What was interesting with that is there was an organization that represents tra- uh, sex trade workers who had actually fought against FOSTA-SESTA. And this was, I can't remember what year this uh, FOSTA-SESTA was originally, originally introduced, but this, you know, this was one of the organizations amongst, of course, others, but this was one that was really prominent because obviously it impacts us, right? So I was really focusing on what they were doing, but they were actually fighting this in court. So there's that aspect of it where people were just like, you know, um, freedom of speech, et cetera, et cetera, and trying to get them to define better what they're trying to ban, right? Because after Backpage, right? Like it was, it's been in Craigslist, you know, got rid of their dating section and all these things that were more public and were also important with in terms of communications for sex trade workers and like safe communications, right? So we've had organizations that were fighting against it. And the other side of thing, because like the one thing too, is like, it just seemed like anybody could just get closed down for exactly what you said the exact reason like it could just be any willy-nilly sort of like it there just wasn't enough defining what could constitute this from happening because there really wasn't a trial period it just kind of happened right so there was that side of things but then the other side of things too is and this is what tripped me up so much like the tech company that was really seeming like in support of Fosta Sesta was Meta, Facebook at the time, right? And the big part about that was because, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, Meta seems to get away with a lot. Like even with Fosta Sesta in place, there's been instances where they've been like looked at as, hey, you actually facilitated the ability for this uh, underage, you know, minor to be sex trafficked through your interact, you know, the interactions of your website. What do you have to say about this? But they always get away with things. So it seemed like Zuckerberg was very in favor of the FOSTA-SESTA package because it got rid of a lot of competition, smaller blogs, smaller websites, smaller, you know, web pages, et cetera. Um, you know, web pages belong to website services. They didn't really have the legal team, you know, so this was getting rid of competition, like people who were just like, hey, I don't have the money to put aside for this if this happens. So like, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to consider this and just like, you know, put it off to the side. And so for, you know, these larger tech companies, I could see in general, like why they would have just been fine with it in that sense. And that's how it kind of is explained to me too. And that's the part that really concerned me because we already have an anti-competition problem when it comes to the tech industry, right? Like 
gone are the days where you can look at this like the wild wild west and just be like oh yeah anybody could sprout up from their garage and you know they're like you know a little engine that could from their you know from silicon valley you know a silicon valley garage or something and then just like show up or whatever like you know, so this was really helping those larger companies but in the process it was kind of like okay but why are you still not being held accountable <laughs> you know so there's constant conflicts around this strange conflict of ha that's happened and i think has a lot has kind of been further defined since i looked at this problem so and you know what if you interview sunny megatron i think she might actually have more updated information than i do because she was following this very closely too but um it was very interesting to me to see how they might actually try to resolve these conflicts because how can you create a new law package that overrides an older you know an older one that especially has formed the internet experience that we all have now you know because that was such an important like section right that was such an important law for these online services that we used to have because nobody wants to be held liable for you know, whatever their users put up, right? Some random person puts on their website. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it facilitates, I mean, online freedom of expression and freedom of speech, right? Like if, you, if you've got a forum that's like, okay, cool, let's like minimize hate speech, minimize, you know, other things that we want to try and minimize, but like there's still an opportunity for you to, to share pretty openly and pretty liberally. But when you start to apply these broad strokes brushes, it's like, well, you're just cutting down people before it even gets to the point of being like, oh, is this actually appropriate? Is this inappropriate? Is this actually harming people? It's like, there's not even that chance because it's like it, you, you're getting censored straight away. And it, there was something here as well that I wanted to, to touch on, right? Because so obviously Foster Sester is like, and this is kind of leading into my next kind of point, I suppose, that I wanted to to speak about with you is it, it was like a protect the children kind of like yes. law, right? It was like, I oh, think of the yes. children, we're doing this for the children. That's how it was pushed and yes. um, and lobbied yes. for. And pe like people get behind that, you know what I mean? Like the, pub, the general public oh, gets yes. behind that, right? That's a very, it's a very emotive talking point. Like if we're talking like, you know, public psychology here, yeah. like getting people to to invest in something like a a save the children rhetoric is like you know and, and it's got historical roots in you know far oh, yeah. back you know so like it's a very uh -huh. reliable um like leverage point to be like hey we're doing this because we're wanting to protect children because who doesn't want to protect children you know what i mean like who who doesn't have children's best interests at heart it's only monsters right would only you know think, <laughs> think yeah, otherwise that's usually the so, way yeah yeah, so that so that like is um, and what I see tied into that is like all the anti-pornography rhetoric, right? And so like you know, porn is bad for kids, and therefore any censorship against porn is going to be good because it's going to protect children. It's kind of like the internal logic of a lot of these like censorship laws, right? And 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 policies, and so. Um, I, I've read the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I've just read a book called Porn Panic: uh, Sex and Censorship in the UK by Jerry Bennett, and it's essentially all about that. So, and it's UK specific, which is quite interesting as well because it's a little bit different. But um, yeah, he talks about how like moral panics and particularly panics around pornography are always centered around like you know think of the children. And so, I feel like I I should say this. I feel like I don't need to say this, but I'm just going to say it. Like we should be protecting kids. You know what I mean? Like I, yes. I feel like, I, and, and I've s very, you know, sporadically had people be like, oh, don't you care about children? Don't you care? And it's like, well, that's two different 
things here, right? It's two different conversations. We got to we got to think about policy that's going to be you know effective and impactful on maybe protecting children, but also going to be you know allowing the free expression of adults, right? And so and wrapped up within all of this conversation is like you know people that are anti-sex work as well that are anti-porn that conflate sex work with human trafficking which is a real big issue that i know a lot of like sex workers are speaking out about as well but there's just like a lot that gets wrapped up into this like one phrase which is like think of the children or save the children and so i don't know where i was going this i kind of lost it there was i feel like there was a question at the end but i didn't get there in the end but i just wanted to like dump that in there and see if you had any reflections on that yeah, as you were talking, anyways, I'm kind of understanding where you were going with the, you know, where their question was going to land. So it's totally, and if it comes back, just let me know too. <laughs> okay, so, sure, sure. By all means, because as you're talking, I'm remembering about two or three topics that come in, you know, under this. So the first thing is totally like this was has always been a political hot topic that has been used in so many campaigns, like whether it's UK, the US, somebody who's studied media studies, like within the political sphere, especially within American history, that has been such a huge component as to why we're seeing certain laws today that maybe don't always necessarily make sense to child safety. And my argument has always been like my counter argument, for example, um, we were supposed to update the curriculum in one of the provinces I lived in and people were like to me, well, first of all, there was a lot of disinformation and misinformation spreading around around this curriculum, even though it was literally posted on the website. The news did not help. They were just feeling the hysteria. It was ridiculous. The curriculum got scrapped, which was unfortunate because there was a lot of really great LGBTQ2S plus material in there. But there's an online component that is super important. So when people tell me that they don't want sex education available to themselves and to their teenagers, I'm like, why are you not thinking of the children? Because there is a huge online safety component to this that you are not equipped to deal with and your kids are not equipped to deal with. If you don't understand how this technology works, you are putting your kids out there, you know, to be targeted in this way, right? Like, I mean, I, when I was, I think I was a later adapter to social media, but like, you know, thank goodness. I'm just glad that I didn't have to deal with it when I was like in my teens. And I decided to go and deal with it professionally in my twenties because I was also a performer, used it to, you know, promote myself, also got jobs based off of it, et cetera. However, the thing for me is that when these laws are being made, like FOSTA-SESTA, they're not even made properly with the technology in mind. So when they created FOSTA-SESTA, they closed websites down that were actually providing not even just sex trade workers, like help, but the police help. When they decide to remove websites like this, they are further driving the problem deeper into the dark web, into all these shady little corners of the internet. And the other part that just tripped me out too is a lot of law enforcement branches didn't even know this law package was coming out. They did not have time to prepare. They didn't have adequate training around what to do next. And digital investigations, as somebody who has been trained in that too, I couldn't even imagine that nightmare. Like you imagine having this full network of like informants and of the tools that you had, you know, set up to actually, you know, assess like, you know, trafficking um, networks and that sort of thing, which is already a daunting task because the stuff isn't geographically situated in, let's say, the U.S. It extends out of the U.S. and then it becomes international and that's already a problem. The problem for in this was that the government did not help its own law enforcement when it did that. So FOSTA-SESTA did not achieve what it was doing. But the big problem for that is that 
people don't know enough about it and how messed up everything ended up being because of it. So nobody knows this problem. Like, you know, the, when you're talking about the general public, right? Like we're always talking about people who didn't grow up with social media. As far as they knew, the government took care of it, whatever, right? Like, you know, it's fine, right? I'm like, no, it's not fine. It got worse. And the thing is, nobody's being equipped properly on how to handle like social media, um, you know, social media-based dangers, conversations that they should have with their kids. Like the one country I know that's doing a amazing job with this is New Zealand. They actually created a whole web series around this and um, they put tools out, you know, adults can use to actually talk to their kids about, you know, dangers that they come across and trying to open that dialogue so that adults can actually be the trusted source that people can come to, like, you know, um, you know, children and teenagers come to when they find something questionable online, right? Because it's going to happen. Like, if, you know, people think that they give their kids their phone or their iPad or whatever, and that they put those child safety things on, you know, whatever, you know, for YouTube. They think it's fine. But like, I've seen how fast YouTube gets weird, <laughs> you know, like, I've seen where it goes. I've seen weird things happen on Facebook. Like, it just, it, there's too much, like, it goes into such a weird place too fast. And then when I think of the the speed of TikTok, like your kid could just be scrolling through that on your phone or something. And you don't even know how many of those videos ended up being weird, you know, like just things you maybe didn't want your kid to see. So this isn't even a bipartisan problem. Like this isn't like, you know, like, oh, this is a Republican or a Democratic problem or anything like this is more like a, it's completely like outside of the political spectrum. Like it is nonpartisan, if that's the correct term of the US, but basically as a Canadian, I would just say this is not even a, like within the political spectrum. Like it's not something that just only impacts liberals or Democrats or Republicans or conservatives or, you know, it, it's uh, everybody's problem because the people that are making the argument that, you know, their kids and their teens don't need the sex education in school also don't have the tools equipped it for themselves to actually keep their kids safe. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you, you, you finding a question in my ramble. Um, so thank you for, for speaking into that. No, it's perfect. Thank you. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to chime in here with a plug for my online men's course. It's called Outperform a Porn Star. It goes for six weeks and it's all about experiencing multiple orgasms, overcoming any uh, sexual dysfunctions, reframing your whole performance mindset around sex to be more pleasure oriented. We talk about communicating with your partner, being a sexual leader, and all of this amazing stuff. So if you're interested in learning how to outperform a porn star, head to my website, www.cam-fraser.com. Uh, let's get back to this episode. I think what I what I remember reading is the the instances, and this is from third party, this is from a third party organization. The instances that they found of like child sexual exploitation on social media versus on mainstream pornography websites, and I think they, you know, the, the ma massive one that they found was like on Pornhub, for example. When you compare the two, like there's just astronomically more instances on social media than there is on mainstream porn, and that's you know partly because there's a lot more users on social media than there is in you know on Pornhub, for example example so facebook versus pornhub but like if you went percentage wise like it's still much more of a percentage of like traffic or trafficking 
um, that's happening on social media than there is actually on on Pornhub. And so, like, and so that is interesting to me, you know, in terms of like the conversation piece because there's anti-Pornhub you know, organizations and anti-trafficking organizations that target porn specifically. And again, it's very anti-porn. And I don't see them speaking about the large, much larger, you know, instance rate on social media compared to, you know, the the websites that they're rallying against. And so it just, and that feels like, you know, dis slash misinformation to me, you know, or like th- this omission of this, you know, certain piece. And I know, you know, this is not me defending Pornhub by any means because I know they've had a pretty, you know, shitty track record. Um, but they did implement a bunch of like security measures for users now, which, are, you know, they're tighter in terms of security than social media has, right? After they had some, you know, like I said, horrific inst- you know, instances. But like they've they've done something about it, and social media kind of hasn't done anything about it. You know what I mean? And so, no, I just find that quite interesting. Again, you know, the anti-porn think of the kid debate is like at the front of my mind when I think about that. And it's funny because people think they see this blaring red flag. They're like, "Oh, the porn, it's there." So let me just stop it. You know, let me just get on top of that. And then you know, and something you mentioned earlier too is it's just reminding me of like how long this has this think of the children narrative has happened because even now like with ratings for TV and you know movies like the like adult ratings, you'll notice that um movie and TV shows like movies and TV shows that have like sex scenes or even intimacy acts of intimacy like let's say making out or kissing. Um, they could still be criticized harder than, um, you know, very violent film. Like you will actually, I can't remember which episode this was. I don't know if you get a series called Adam Ruins Everything. He actually did a really good deep dive on an episode about this. But basically, um, the host, Adam, he just talks about how, you know, like this study that kind of looked at the fact that uh, shows with uh, movies with sex scenes were usually like R-rated and that sort of thing. Like, in, you know, you don't even have to have full nudity for this to happen. Whereas, you know, shows or movies with extreme, you know, violence, like that's still like PG-13 sometimes, you know, like it doesn't necessarily end up into R until you start getting to more, let's say, grotesque things like, uh, you know, seeing corpses and, you know, what have you. But, um, and it's funny that this is still the, the narrative because where's the think of the children aspect on the violence side, first of all? Like, I never thought, like, I never still understood up to now why people are so comfortable around this violence and acclimatizing their children to violence from such a younger age. And yet we've had societies before this one that were actually much more open about sexuality. And we still have civilizations that are still much more open about sexuality because it hasn't been antagonized this way. And this is me coming from it from an anthropological perspective and also somebody who's done like museum studies and looked at Mesopotamia and, you know, what have you. And also being a tantrika and like understanding it from that side of things when we're coming into things from like a Buddhist or Hindu perspective. And I'm not talking about like mainstream Hinduism that we generally see that's migrated. I'm talking about like a smaller sect of Hinduism. You know, we can get into that if you want to in another another day, or if you want to get into it at some point, we could do that too. But I'll, I'll just sidebar that for now. But to get back to your, your original point is such a great one. Actually, for anybody who has Discovery Plus, I highly recommend a series called Under... It's either Underage, Undercover, Undercover, Underage. I think it's Underage, Undercover. 
There's an organization in the U.S. called SOSA, I believe it is. Um, and the founder of that organization has created this docu-series. And I'm hoping it has another season because it gives adults, I think, a bit more of a wake-up call as to how fast and how easy it is for predators to actually access kids. Like, I've because I've been in that, like, the digital investigation side, like, I've seen because I also follow people who are on, you know, like getting uh, hired to do this type of work, I've seen how fast you can end up luring, you know, anybody, whether it's an adult or a child, into a compromising situation. People think that it's just teenagers this happens to or kids, but honestly, I've seen, like, people end up in a situation, like, it's like catfishing, for example. You think you're having feelings for somebody, they, they gain your trust, you send them compromising photos. Next thing you know, you're being blackmailed and told to do other things. So if you're, you as an adult can have that happen to you, like I'm, I'm saying this could happen to the best of us or the worst of us or whatever, right? Like everybody thinks that they're immune to this, right? Like everybody thinks that, well, that could just more so happen to a child or a teenager or whatever. And yes, this is happening to them. It's terrifying. Like how can you, it blows my mind that how can you like take a Spotify playlist and actually lure somebody from that? Like that's, in itself is just wild to me and take it to another platform where you can talk right at least with Pornhub you don't talk like you don't actually like have an interaction with people but they're always taking it back to a social media outlet and getting to you know earning the person's trust through that so yeah you're absolutely right there there isn't enough being done and I think the statistics that you're looking for they could be collected by organizations like SOSA but like you know that well, the organization that I'm kind of blanking a little bit on that had created undercover, underage, uh, underage undercover. Um, but I know that social media outlets, of course, are not collecting this information because they don't even categorize it as a problem. This is a big problem with tech right now where it's not a problem if it, you know, if it's being swept under the rug. So why bother collecting data around it, right? Um, so I don't think you are going to see a lot of statistics, not for a while until this is actually recognized as a real problem. You know, and I'm not trying to be, um, you know, over, I'm not trying to over-exaggerate the dangers of online, but people just need to remember, like, you're accessing the whole world, you know, and, you know, different countries have different laws and different, and different communities have different uh, standards and, like, you know, different people are going to have different motives for things. And, you know, you could think you're talking to some hunky person in your city and they're like trying to pull a scam on you from another country like it's just people need to be and i don't even blame people for this like our governments need to take more responsibility and teaching us media literacy and actually assessing what's in front of us and reminding us and showing giving us those tools to remind us that everything that we're seeing is not always what we are seeing right so that is a big problem right now. This is why disinformation, misinformation has such a huge grip on societies as they're polarizing, you know, societies and um, really breaking down the fabric of things in ways that are impacting all of our lives. A big part of this is that, you know, our governments do need to take more of a stronger stance on giving us the tools that we need in order to protect ourselves when we're online, just be cognizant of what it is to be an online citizen. Yeah, and you you bring up an interesting like point about you know, people being catfished, right? So just use that as a like example, because there's you know from what I understand, and here's where I want to like transition into like another point of, uh, around technology and, and social media and sexuality, for example, is like 
you know, I know for a while, law enforcement, for example, if they were trying to catch predators online, would essentially catfish predators by, you know, by pretending to be children, right? By pretending to be little boys and little girls. And so, um, like, that takes a toll, firstly, on the the law enforcement officer who's doing that, right, to put themselves in that, you know, situation to pretend to be that and have this interaction with a predator in the hopes of, like, trying to get them to a situation where they can be, you know, apprehended. But what I have read recently is that they're starting to use AI in order to try and catch predators. And and the two ways that I've read that they are using artificial intelligence to do that, the first is through... I, well, I read this program about this Lolita, which is like a little artificial intelligence modeled on like a little girl. And so that is being used instead of a officer, instead of a, a person to lure predators. Um, and so it's not, you know, a real little girl. I want to be clear on that. And it's not, a, a, it's, not a, it's not even a human being. It's a program that's run in order to like pretend to be a little girl. And like, so that's, interesting and an interesting application of AI in order to like essentially catfish predators. And then the other one was using AI in order to like map behavior as well. So like really tracking, you know, existing predators behaviors and then essentially predicting where predators will show up or what they'll say or what they're going to do next and being able to like stop things essentially before they happen. Maybe not that's kind of like, that's kind of sounds a bit utopian, but like just like this predictive modeling of like this predatory behavior to try and like, you know, trick, you know, catch people, I suppose. And that's also interesting to me as well, because I see a lot of fear around AI and like, you know, and, and it was recently, recently someone said to me online, like, because I put up a post about AI and sex toys, for example, and they um, made the made this argument to me that like, oh, the introduction of artificial intelligence into like the sexuality realm is only going to, you know, further the problem of sex trafficking and child sexual abuse. And they were like, if you can't see how that's going to make the problem worse, then like I, you know, they were questioning my concern for children essentially. And so, and I was like, well, that's a weird thing to say about AI, considering it's literally already being used by law enforcement agencies to catch and, you know, apprehend, you know, child predators and also like crack down on human trafficking. So, and I know you mentioned AI before, so I wanted to just like pop that into the mix and see if you had any thoughts on, on that technology. Absolutely. Actually, I've written about AI and presented at conferences about it, but mostly from the social media curation side, just because there are a lot of issues around biases. Actually, two scholars that I would love to recommend for this sort of, you know, this sort of conversation. Let's talk about the AI bias part first, since that's the part I brought up. But Sophia Umoja Noble, who wrote Algorithmic Oppression, she was really uh, one of my favorite researchers that I pulled from. And Joy Bulamini, sorry. She actually is uh, the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, and she created this beautifully acclaimed uh, documentary called Coded Bias. And I recommend both of them. Yeah, like they're just they're just shining lights in this like landscape of things, because like when I wrote, okay, I've written about algorithmic bias actually from two angles. One was the social media management, social media curation part, because we do have a huge issue with uh, influencers and models of color actually being curated within our feed, you know, in our hashtag feeds and that sort of thing. Like they're not, 
a pro like proportionately represented usually like we're still unfortunately seeing traditional media and eurocentric standards um around beauty and acceptance kind of replicated in in machine learning unfortunately so i've written about it and presented about it from that end but i've also have written about this from the cyber threat intelligence side of things with algorithmic um you know algorithmic bias because the other problem is there are technologies that have been implemented by governments that have had detrimental impacts on especially communities of color because the and this is what joy talks about in her work ai still has not caught up with people of color so they actually identify especially like black people in like one state and then like just say that 50 other people look like that one person like they might be like a government might be using the facial recognitions have one person's face but like you know it's not distinct enough and then they, they end up getting the wrong person this happens more often with people of color especially black people so um this there is issues there are issues around using ai but people also need to realize this is technology like we have the capabilities of making it better but it's within the culture and the society that it is being built in right like all of our technologies could be made to do better and Tristan Harris actually from the Center of Humane Technology talks about this a lot he used to work for Google and he went off and did the social dilemma which is a really great documentary on um he produced that on uh, Netflix and I was kind of following his work before that but and so I was really kind of you know feeling what he was saying because of the fact that we have all these capabilities of making better, more socially, you know, like more pro-social social media, like things that actually bring us together versus polarizing and angering everybody. <laughs> like, so, you know, he's trying to encourage social media companies to actually go towards communication, communication and community versus polarization and anger. But the other thing is all of these problems we're having with machine learning and AI at large they could be perfected. They could actually be, you know, produced in exactly like that example you said, like be used to do these daunting tasks where, you know, maybe we don't, like it, that AI will obviously be further sophisticated, you know, with further worked upon to make it more realistic as it goes along to embody, you know, the characters that it's trying to, you know, trying to be in this case, a little girl so that it can accomplish what it's out, set out to do. So, I mean, I've always been that person coming into tech where I was like, anything is possible with tech. And I think I was a little more rose, you know, rose glassed when I came in thinking, oh, this is going to be the Wild West. Anybody could be rich. This is going to be amazing. And then remembering as I went along, oh, right, the, the community and the, what's funding it and who's funding and all that plays such a big part into what we're seeing and what we're seeing everything used as. Fortunately, cutting edge technology usually gets used in military situations and law enforcement situations first and further refined there before it becomes public domain or like not public domain, but you know, becomes a public consumer-based thing that we can all enjoy, right? So I wouldn't say that AI is something that we can avoid for child safety i'm actually kind of wondering what that person was kind of worried about to be honest with you because the problem for me at least that i've seen is not so much uh ai it's these like the you know these people who are profiting off of extortion and trafficking and that sort of thing and the thing is and anybody from uh, you know from a law enforcement side or from like you know an international body a security bo you know international international security body side of things 
they can all tell you that this isn't something that's easily fixed because of the fact that our online experience does not stay contained within physical borders. You could have a good lead on somebody doing something, whether that's interfering with an election or targeting people for adult trafficking or, you know, doing something within the drug trade or something. But once that's out of your jurisdiction, like you, you're, you're unusually like hitting some dead ends in that sense, right? So we still have old problems, despite how good technology is. And there's not really like, I mean, there's policy related things that could be done, like, let's say from a UN perspective, like, you know, trying to create multinational agreements with other countries to try to really drill this down. But I'm starting sometimes to feel like even when I see these solutions, these potential possible solutions that I haven't seen enacted, I often wonder, is there a benefit to keeping this villain alive? Are we Batmaning it? Are we like, instead of creating, you know, fixing the problem, we're just putting, you know, we're putting a spotlight on the villain. We're putting the villain on a timeout or putting them in jail, but then we want them back out on the street again so that we can have this never ending saga. Sorry to anybody who loves Batman, but like, like if anybody's seen that meme, like there's a meme about Batman and just like how he could actually fix problems with his money. But anyways, a whole other story. Yeah, but without um, the problems, he doesn't really have a job, does he? Yes, exactly. So there's that, right? Like it's like if you're a billionaire, do you want to fix the root of the problems, or do you want to like just these villains to keep coming back so you can keep fighting them? So that that reminds feeling. me. Sorry to cut you off, but that just reminds no, me of something I means. saw fucking Elon Musk post on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, where he was like, "Do you like?" He was like, kind of like going, "Do you guys not know how social media works? It's going to be on outrage. Like the more outrage you get, the more clicks you get." And I was like, "Mate, weren't you just buying?" Twitter to like make it better and for it to you know you know be about free speech and public discourse and now you're just like straight up going yeah no fuck that off I'm just going to be talking about you know things that outrage you and that's what's going to be prioritized and it's like yeah I mean I I'm not a fan of Elon Musk to be fair straight up so I don't want to hide that uh, <laughs> bias but um but I was like yeah essentially what you you you've just shared here is like you know the the people that own these tech companies are not invested in pro-social interactions they're invested in outrage they're invested in in getting clicks they're invested in harvesting your data as well which i mean this is a massive topic and i realize we've only got five minutes um oh, do we but, <laughs> but one of the, so I, mean, I would love to talk to you for hours but um just know, mindful right? of people that are listening um there was a like one of the other i'll try and tie this into what i mentioned before one of the other um oppositions to the idea of like AI and sex toys. And so I kind of made this, this, you know, imagine if you could use a sex toy that was powered by AI and it tailored, you know, its vibrations and stimulation specifically to your preferences based on like the information that it had gathered from you. And I was like, that's, I think that's pretty interesting and pretty cool. What, an important point that was brought up and, and I, I want to mention it here was like, okay, well, who's, it's collecting information about you, right? It's collecting data about you in order to tailor its response to you. What happens to that data, right? What happens to that information that it's stored about you? And it's actually, there's actually been some like cases already with sex toys that are collecting that information. I, and I don't want to mention names. Um, thankfully, it wasn't for the company that I work for um, or work with. So I'm happy to, you know, to, to steer clear of that. Um, but like collecting, um, one of the things was collecting uh 
temperature information about, and it was an insertable, uh, it was an insertable sex toy and it was collecting temperature information on the app. And because the app was connected to the internet, the, the, uh, you know, the, the company had access to the, you know, temperature information of this particular, and they, you know, the, the reason why they said, why are we collecting temperature information in the first place? Well, it was, you know, it's for toy maintenance, right? It's to make sure that the hardware is not overheating and things like that. And it's like, well, that's still weird, you know, that you're collecting, you know, temperature from the people that are using it and, um, and what could be potentially used with that, you know, information. But one of the things that I, you know, one of the things that like to, to mitigate that is to not have a toy that's connected to the internet, right? Because if it's a standalone toy and product and it's just working on the information that you have and it's not sending it out anywhere, it's not storing that anywhere, it's not connected to the internet, then that's problem mitigated, right? Um, but with the whole internet of things, you know, um, so that we've got going on, like everything's fucking, my toast is probably connected to the internet these days, you know? So, um, so like, so that's like one, but that's, I don't know, I'm just rambling again here, but that like, that's a major problem that, that is like really important to, to talk about, right? It's, it's, it's data protection and privacy. And, and we have, from what I understand, again, I'm very green on this. We have terrible, terrible policies around privacy and data protection. Is that fair to say? A hundred bajillion percent. I think this is <laughs> a huge part of why we're seeing this problem not being resolved. Like when it comes to like whether it's hate speech, like thinking of the children versus the allowances for these avenues for trafficking or extortion or, you know, any other big, like larger concerns that we have when we think of kids being online and social media not really doing much and washing their hands of it, this does come down to profit. Like whether it's the data mining you're talking about or not wanting to lose users, right? Because if you start cracking down, right? And this is why we don't, I think, see a lot of the things being done around these things. They don't want to lose the users. They don't want to like start, because I can guarantee you they can already like figure out what an, a discussion looks like that's going to lead to you know, a compromising situation. I can guarantee you that because they have already very nuanced profiles, like especially like Meta, for example, on our political standings, on our, you know, what we, our views are, like where we shop, like, you know, with, you know, they were talking about Google or like Meta, like, especially because we're using smartphones all the time. Like they know our habits, they know everything about us. Like when it comes to like, for example, if anybody's watched a social dilemma, I know there's been arguments against some things that were said in that documentary, but for the most part, is it really that hard for people to understand that we've given all this information for free, this type of market information that we used to actually get paid to do? Like, that's the part that offends me, to be honest with you. Coming from a marketing background, it bugs me so much that everybody gives all this information for free, but they might not understand or know, or, you know, like, I don't even really think about it that much. But like, all this stuff is going to them for free. And then the other thing, too, is like, I say this to people all the time who, let's say, live in the U.S. or anywhere where they have private healthcare. Be so careful about like how you talk about your health conditions, how you're allowing your phones to store your, your temperature or your other bio data. Because how do I know that's not being sold to insurance companies? I'm not trying to put that into people's heads, but I mean, we have had concerns about Meta and like other companies selling off data, and it might be anonymized or whatever, but it's a little not anonymized like it's not anonymized enough john john oliver okay did a fantastic it. piece on that Ooh. for his show about like how quote-unquote anonymized data can actually be used very effectively to find out exactly who that data came from i'll, I'll send you the link because it was fantastic the way that he did it but yeah it's um it's, it's exactly to that point it's like yeah it's quote-unquote anonymized but actually no not really 
Yeah. So, you know, like I, for, you know, for, you know, I know we talked a little bit about this be, before, but, you know, um, this is why I'm very careful. And I know I'm not, I'm not as careful as I could be, I think, even on like the things that I want to keep like private, but like I've taken my cues on how people have managed their privacy online and try to do that to the best of my ability. But I'm always cognizant and aware that my phone is always you know, um, logged into things. And, the, you know, even if I don't have the Facebook app, for example, I know that there's other ways Facebook can get my data, for example, you know, and things like this. So um, people don't really f- fully understand how much data is collected on us and to the extent of which it's organized and collected. And that's the part I think that's concerned. I'm not saying this to freak everybody out and just like tuck their phones and like try to hide in a cave or anything like that. Although at this point, I don't mind the idea of living in a cave or a forest sometimes, to be honest with you. I just would love to disconnect a little bit or at least have some time to actually try to do that. And maybe that's a ton streaker inside of me that wants to do that a little bit. Um, I'm not saying this to scare people from trying not to use these things, but what I'm saying is they have to be just very careful about how they critique technology because technology it's like tissue or any inanimate object it can be used for good it can be used for evil and the thing we can do right now i think as a society that's so important is to actually give our time to organizations that are trying to teach us about how our, in- our information is being shared and what we can do you know policy wise especially like I-, I love what the european union has done with gdpr you know like i love that they've actually tried to make efforts and try to hold social media um, outlets accountable to certain extents, more so, unfortunately, than other countries have for the most part. But, you know, like actually become politically involved on that side instead of just like pointing the blame in the wrong places, right? Because that's just wasting their own energy. Like it's wasting people, like people's passions should be directed in ways that can help resolve the problem. And I feel like unfortunately a lot of these tech companies are aware that we don't understand how a lot of this is happening so even if you have somebody who's a phd holding you know research person who's doing all this work this is their life's mission not enough people are actually paying attention to that scholar you know what i mean so that's my concern like i see a lot of passion but i see a lot of anger and i just feel like people can still use these things, but they need to have a greater understanding around it. So, for example, the data mining you mentioned with the, you know, with sex toys. I mean, if there was a guarantee, for example, with a sex toy using AI to keep that information s- circulated within just the device to you and like to an app that's not transmitting it somewhere else, like even just like, say, let's say it's saving it all to your computer, for example, and the computer is not transmitting it elsewhere or something like that great right but the the real truth behind all of it is data mining is such a huge like massive part of any corporation's like profit right now like whether you're even just talking about a loyalty program like starbucks's loyalty program or we're talking about social media which is never really free um your your information's going to be mined because that's where the money is we're, we are the product at this point some people have pessimistically said this and I kind of have to agree with that like we we are who we are the ones who are being targeted in ads and targeted in marketing but our our beings our existence our data is actually also being sold to you know the corporations that are interested in selling to us so you know it, it's a uh, it's an unfortunate cycle but my big takeaway is for people to just learn you know just 
get on top of this stuff, like actually look at the resources. I'll give you the scholars' names that I mentioned, the Sophia and Joy. I'll send you their um, information so you can, you know, add this to the podcast if you'd like to. But there are great points. Like they are great places to start interest in as well. All three of them are just great areas, like, you know, great people, great thought leaders in this, you know, in this overall cloud of confusion to actually pay more attention to. Mm, yeah, I appreciate you you ending on a cautionary yet uh, slightly optimistic uh, note where I, I agree with you that like, I mean, there's, I see a lot of fear around technology and part of me is like, you know, the, the fear is being, you know, I kind of say that like you're like, if you're afraid of where technology is going to take us is because of your politics, not because of the technology itself is because you know, you, you're, you're framing, you know, technology and the future of it in a way of thinking about the way that we're using technology now, which is to exploit us and to, and to make money off of us. Right. And so if that's your, and I get it, if that's your framework for like, oh, technology is, is, you know, you know, where the product, you know, kind of like mentality, then if you extrapolate that into the future, that's a pretty fucking scary future. But if you think a little bit differently about your politics, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but like if you think about like how we could potentially use, uh, you know, technology in more uh, pro-social ways, in ways that are like beneficial for us, right? In ways that, you know, stoke community and connection rather than, you know, whatever your fear around it, that it is that it's going to do. I see a very bright potential future for us. But we've got to advocate for it, right? We've got to we've got to really try and fight for it. Essentially, what my my two cents is on on that topic. So um, that's a huge you know part of the conversation as well. And I just want to be um, mindful of of closing down this uh, podcast. Um, and I'm just yeah, I, I could nerd out for you uh, with you for for a, a long time after this. But I'm I'm uh, really just grateful that you wanted to sit down and, and have a chat with me about you know, censorship and tech and sexuality. It's, um, I, I've got heaps of other things that I wanted to talk about, but I'm just going to have to rein myself in and say, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Cam. And yeah, if you, you know, if you want to do part two of this or, you know, just talk about anything, you know, that stems from this conversation, especially if you get feedback about this, please feel free to let me know. I'm glad to come back and share whatever research, you know, um, that I might have on certain topics because it, it's such an important you know, conversation and it's it's a conversation that will shape our futures. It is, you know, this, these are the topics people need to be thinking about, whether they are thinking about them or not, right? Like people do need to realize that exactly what you said, um, we have the capabilities of shaping this in another way that um, can benefit all of us. It doesn't need to be the Terminator some people often bring up when it comes to AI. But yeah, we just need to be very vigilant about where this is going and you know, really question the things that we're seeing, you know, as they, as they're developed. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks again for just you know, chatting with me. I, I, um, I really appreciated it. Thank you for inviting me, Cam. I really appreciate it. <laughs> no worries. Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Men's Sex and Pleasure podcast. If you find value from this content, then I encourage you to consider becoming a patron on my Patreon account. You can find the link for that in the description below. You have access to a whole bunch of perks, including behind the scenes podcast footage, as well as pre-release YouTube videos and patron-only writing, as well as the opportunity to have your name either shown in a YouTube video or read out in a 
thank you during the podcast. So like I said, if you enjoy this content and you'd like to support it and support me, then head to the link in the show notes below and consider becoming a patron. Thank you.